Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Make your pages look professional with vellum. Margins, headers, page numbering, font, line spacing, all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate eBooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, and others, or deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. Vellum. Create beautiful books. Check out Based on the Evidence, a mother-son true crime podcast that mixes humor with heavy topics in order to bring some levity to the darkness. The mom and son team entertain while unearthing a great diversity of cases, not just the cold ones. You'll get closure from Based on the Evidence, exposure to new crimes you may never have heard of, and the pleasure of getting to know this mom and son while they deepen their relationship with their connecting love of true crime. Check out the Based on the Evidence podcast. We're here with Mary McCoy, author of Dead to Me, Camp So-and-So, and also I, Claudia. Her forthcoming book, Indestructible Objects, is about a Memphis girl who starts an investigative podcast to figure out whether love exists after her personal life goes up in flames. So with that backlist and with this upcoming book, it's pretty clear that you do a lot of genre hopping, which is something that I do as well. So I would love to talk about that. First of all, maybe your thoughts on why you are a genre hopping writer and then thoughts on whether publishing is kind to that or not. (laughs) It's funny. I was thinking about that before we started talking and I'm like, why do I do that? Because the first answer that came to my head was I'm trying to entertain myself when I write. Mm. I think it's more than that. I think it also speaks to the kind of reader that I've always been. Like I've never been a reader who just reads one kind of thing. I've always like read across genres, nonfiction, fiction. Even as an adult, I read books for children, books for young adults. I read a lot of adult fiction too. So I think it makes sense that you write the kind of books that you want to read. Why why do you do it? It's a great question. And always my response has been that I write widely because I read widely. So Mm -hmm. all of my inspiration, any ideas that I have for stories, they can come from anywhere. Focus on anything. So it's something that I just believe has always been part of my wide curiosity as well. I'm just like you. I read everything. I read nonfiction. I read fiction. I read YA. I read for adults. I don't read romance. That's just not my thing. But I will read anything as far as genre goes. I don't mean to be like particular, but I don't understand just reading in one genre. I know people that do. I don't think I could ever 
have that kind of diet in my reading. So I read widely. And I think that that means that any of my ideas and any of my inspiration also happens across a wide spectrum. Something my my agent actually pointed this out to me that this is something I do. She said, it seems like when you start a project, you have also set yourself some kind of little challenge. I think that's true. I think whenever I'm working on a project, I want to tell a story, but I also have set some sort of like, hmm, I think that this might be just outside my abilities and I want to see if I can, if I can grab it. So I don't know, maybe that's why I do it as well. Like I'm trying to grow as a writer. Well, I think that's a really good point. I know with my book, Amanda So Discreet, that one is a historical. And mm-hmm. when I wrote it, when I was getting ready to write it, I was really excited about it. And I was doing all this research and looking at everything that I had going on and really just like, yeah, this is going to be great. And then when it came time to write it, I kept putting it off. I researched for 18 months before I even started writing it. And a lot of the reason why is because I was afraid that I would not be able to pull this off because it's historical and it's a mystery and my main character is a selective mute. So there wasn't a lot of chance to be working with dialogue. So, I mean, it was a huge challenge. My book that came out in 2020 is called Be Not Far From Me. It's about a girl that is lost in the woods. It's a survival book. It's basically like Hatchet, but with a girl. She is alone in the woods 98% of that book. And I never thought about the fact that- <laughs> How do you that do that? It's going to be damn hard to write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I, I started writing it and I was just like, I would come and I would sit down in front of my laptop and I would be like, okay, so what's going on now? Oh yeah, she's in the woods. <laughs> There's no one to talk to. And I'm yeah, like, Why just to myself? Just her own terrible, terrible thoughts. Many of my friends that are writers have uh, sent me messages or emailed me because they actually, they saw that challenge. I'll get emails from readers. They're like, oh my gosh, I love this book. Thank you. But I get an email from a writer and they're like, how the hell did you do that? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, those challenges, changing things up. I think you're right. I think that's a really good point. Switching things around to challenge yourself. Like in Indestructible Object, a lot of that story is told in podcast transcripts. Ah. And like that was something that I wanted to play around with. Part of the story is, you know, the main character is running around trying to get her parents to tell her the story that they do not really want to tell her (laughs) over the course of the book, trying to draw that story out from them and then working that into the narrative as well. Because, and this is something my editor pointed out to me, when you're writing a, a young adult contemporary novel, the point of the book can't be getting to the bottom of her parents' mystery. You have to keep the story focused on her and her life and what she's going through. And that has to be the center of the story. That was an interesting challenge as well. You know, I love a book where someone digs up family secrets. I write a lot of small town stuff. So yeah, family Uh secrets are always big. You and I have a, we have a weird amount in common (laughs) in addition to our alliterative names. Um, Like we both grew up, (laughs) because I grew up in Western Pennsylvania in a small Mm -hmm. town. Used to be teen librarians. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love, I think that probably also contributed to my reading and, and uh, writing widely because I was always reading things that like normally I wouldn't so that I would be able to like do good at my job and be able yeah. to 
you know, give the books to kids that needed those books. So yeah, I think that that definitely contributed to me reading widely and writing widely as well. Yeah. And it's funny, I'm not a, a young adult librarian anymore. I'm, I now am an art librarian. And I feel like I'm not nearly as well versed in what's going on in young adult literature as I was when I worked in with with teens. And oh, yeah. yeah, I miss it a little bit. There are times I'm like, oh, what, what's on trend right now? What is everyone reading? I have no idea. Twitter helps, but it's a terrible place to be. Yeah, I don't go on Twitter unless I have to. Weirdly, a lot of people that I know had this problem. Uh, COVID hit and it should have been like our time for readers. We should be like the happiest people on earth. And I had a hard time reading over COVID for whatever reason. Nothing was speaking to me. I've been really struggling with reading lately, but Mm -hmm. part of it is because I'm writing so much. I get no breaks from words. All I do is words, words, words. So when it's time to relax, sometimes I'm like, nope, no more words. I had this the similar problem the first few months of the pandemic. And actually, the, the book that was kind of my drought breaker was Felix Ever After by Case and Calendar. I read mm-hmm. that book yeah. and it was just like a beam of sunshine. And I don't know, it opened a floodgate and I was able to read after that. Uh, I was also like all during 2020, like pretty much from March 2020 through December 2020, I was on deadline. I was doing, oh. my revi- yeah, doing my revisions on Indestructible Object. And I discovered that being on deadline during a pandemic works pretty well, like kept yeah. me focused on something in the very immediate future. Um, trying to be a creative person writing first drafts during a pandemic is proving to be slightly more difficult. Um, just having a really hard time getting into that into that headspace right now, which is weird. It's never really happened. I, I've never experienced, I wouldn't call it writer's block because I know what I want to write. My body's just saying like, no. <laughs> no, I understand. I'm in the similar position. I, I don't want to write. It's uh, Mm -hmm. when I sit down in front of my laptop, I mean, it's always work, but it feels kind of like drudgery. And um, I don't know why it's partially because I'm an outdoor person and I don't like the way my publishing schedule is currently set up where I'm drafting in the summer. It makes me sad. I want to be outside and I want to be working. And it's like, you know, my flower beds don't look good. My garden is a mess. I haven't even been out there, you know, and it, and that tends to like drag me down a little bit. So that's part of it for me. If my, if my drafting was in the winter months, I would be probably much happier. Speaking of that genre jumping, when you talk about the different types of books that you read, but then also what you write, do you think that publishing or maybe your sales numbers would be kinder to you if you just picked a thing and stuck with it? (laughs) I don't know the answer to that. I, you know, I feel like I will keep doing this as long as I can get away with it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like maybe at some point I'll be told no. (laughs) And, you know, I'll listen to that. But I don't know. I also wonder if at some point I won't just return and go, full circle in a way. Like the book that I would like to try to write next is a mystery. My first book was a historical mystery. I I feel like along the way through my four books, I have, I don't know that there's definitely a through line, but there's a trajectory. I heard from a young reader who has read all four of my books and, and she said, I, I liked this one the best. I feel like you're, you just keep getting better, which was really nice to hear from someone. 
I was just talking to a friend the other night who said the same thing, and that's good to hear. And, you know, I think about my first book, Dead to Me, which is like this hard-boiled detective novel. And I remember having conversations with my editor while I was working on that book. And the whole time she was like, could you give her some feelings? Could you, you know, she's a real cool customer. And I was just like, no, she can't have feelings. That's too hard. And then Indestructible Object is nothing but feelings and characters Mm -hmm. who talk about their feelings all day long and are um, either really in touch with their feelings or trying to be. That's a nice journey to see because I think that in some way reflects something of a personal journey, not just a creative one. I've had similar feedback um, over the course of writing for as long as I've been writing and having my critique partners be like, how does she feel right now? And um, I would have so many comment bubbles on the sides where it was like, and she feels how, and people, you know, really pushing me to, to dig into the, those feelings and that internal monologue. That is definitely part of the craft that you get better at. You don't necessarily see it at first when you are um, a newer writer or an early writer, you are just thinking plot most of the time, um, not mm-hmm. necessarily all of the time, but you want to get everything down on the page so that you don't lose it. And that is a progression of events. I know that I have gotten better as I get older and am writing more. I don't have to go back in and layer in feelings as much as I used to. Something that I feel like I've gotten better at over four books, making that translation between what's in your head and what actually shows up on the page. Because I would miss that early on. I would know what the character looked like and I would know what they were feeling, but I hadn't actually written it. And Mm -hmm. it would take feedback from critique partners to to realize that like, oh, I never actually (laughs) put that on the page. I depended too heavily on inferences. So I'd be like, yeah, but like in this dialogue right here, like you can see that that's how she feels. And and it very much, you're right. You're the author. So you already know how they feel or what they look like or what they're wearing. And so you don't necessarily put it on the page, but you feel like you see it that way because that's what it looks like. And you didn't necessarily do a good job of actually putting it on the page. That is something that you learn as you go. I think, too, when it comes to the genre hopping, I think I have 12 books out, maybe 11, and I've got two more coming. I have kind of begun to settle because I've written everything from, you know, historical, mystery, fantasy, post-apocalyptic. I've written a little bit of everything, contemporary thrillers, and... I have started to find a little bit of a groove, like you were saying before about a through line. All of my books, like you read any of my books from the the fantasy to the contemporary thriller, the voice is there. The grittiness and the feeling is is there. Mm -hmm. This is a Mindy McGinnis book, but it may not have like the same genre or the same style because my style can vary pretty widely. Some of my books, like Amanda's So Discreet, and then my fantasy books are written a little more with a literary bent. Whereas my first two books, the post-apocalyptic books, they're very mm-hmm. sparse uh, just to reflect the landscape and reflect what's going on in the world. But when I have a book that has a little more of a rich setting, 
the language changes. So um, I am a little bit all over the place. And I do think it has probably hurt me in terms of finding core readers, in terms of my publisher knowing how to market me. I do think that that has probably not done me a lot of favors just in terms of straight up book sales. Yeah. And I don't know. For me, I don't know how much of a commercial writer I am. So mm-hmm. I don't feel like it impacts me quite as much. I'm, I'm a mid-lister, I guess. Yeah. I feel like over four books, there are readers who have come with me because yeah. they like the style. They like the like the voice you were saying. Like You can tell when you're reading a Mindy McGinnis novel. I think something like that develops. When you're writing, do you ever feel like like you're just trying to see what you can get away with? <laughs> oh, yeah, all the time. I'll write something and I'll be like, oh, that's not going to make it in, you know, and the, but uh-huh. I'll like, we'll see what happens. I mean, I remember when Female of the Species came out and just everyone was like, I can't believe she got away with that. Like she just mm-hmm. she, she got to do that. And that was what made me realize and this is probably why I'm still writing YA. Because I feel like you can really be experimental in YA. You can do things in YA that they would never let you do in the adult market. And I think it's a very exciting place to be for that reason. Yeah, Um, I think so too. I think so too. I think that you can have some fun and play and dabble because I think the younger readers are going to be more receptive. My most recent book has, uh, it's written in three POVs and one of them is a panther. And most of my readers have been like, oh, that's really cool. But then it's like, I, I've had adults that are like, what the hell are you doing? I'm having fun. <laughs> exactly. The Female of the Species is a good example. So I think that was my fourth book. And I was not, and I still am not, uh, like a very well-known writer. I have a group of people that really love me and will buy every book that I write. But that's like maybe 500 people. Like I don't have a huge audience. I definitely think that there's a perception that that I sell more than I actually do, if I'm being totally honest. I'm probably actually, as far as numbers go, a mid-lister as well. I just get away with a lot. And I think, honestly, that's part of the reason why I get away with it. I mean, the female species should be banned. Like, there's no reason <laughs> why that book should not be banned other than it isn't read as widely as some other books that get banned. This Darkness Mine, when I wrote that, I was like, oh, this is getting banned. Nope, not not a peep. And I think it's just because uh, they aren't read enough. And that's fine. It's like, I'm, I'm ready to be banned. I think it'll be great. Every time I write something, I think, well, this, this, this one's not going to make it. And uh, I keep getting away with it. But I think that's partially because I do have a reputation that I write the way that I do. And the people that like it already know it. And that's who's going to pick up my books. It's people that already know who I am. I think we've both been called gritty. My first couple of books got called gritty. My second book definitely got called weird. The word that I that keeps coming up with indestructible object, every review that I have seen of it, the word messy seems to be the word. I've decided, I don't know, I don't think everyone means that as a compliment, but uh, I've decided to wear it as a point of pride because yeah. it's a book about human relationships and human emotions and those are rarely tidy. Or Those if they are, are tidy, they're not interesting. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I get a lot of bleak 
And I'm always like, is that, is that good or is that like, <laughs> like, well, I mean, it was supposed to be, so I guess I did it right. Vellum, It Just Works. Best-selling indie author Alex Lydell, whose book Enemy Contact, an enemies to lovers romantic suspense, hit number 25 in the Amazon paid Kindle store has this to say about vellum. There are always a ton of hangups in the publishing process, from the printer running out of ink at just the wrong moment to Amazon rejecting margins. But vellum has been one program I can depend on. It formats my manuscripts quickly, professionally, and most importantly, in a way that never gets rejected by any online retailers. Visit www.trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. That's trivellum.com forward slash pants. Vellum. It just works. Love to read? Check out the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where, with an informal, conversational, and engaging manner, host Cindy routinely gets authors to open up about what's important to them, giving busy readers the backstory to their favorite, or as yet undiscovered, books. Cindy and her guests talk about books spoiler-free, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. Then they delve into things that you won't hear about elsewhere, the importance of cover design, why an author included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on Cindy's website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Talking about indestructible objects, the book that I'm drafting right now deals with a girl, a young girl who is creating a podcast. So I think that's really interesting that you're uh, doing the same thing because I am also toying with writing out the podcast, like the transcript as, as a chapter. Was Courtney Summers the first one to do it with Sadie? Yeah. My book is very different from Sadie because there are no villains and no one dies. And the podcasts are about art and love instead Mm -hmm. of murder, but it's a very satisfying format to write in. And you know, my third book, I Claudia, the last section of that book is written entirely in court transcripts. So there was something similar stylistically. Um, and I don't know, I, I hadn't listened to a lot of podcasts prior to writing this book. And I do now. I, it was easy to kind of fall into the rhythms of it. And like, there are actually two different podcasts in the book. There's mm-hmm. the one that she produces with her boyfriend. It's called Artists in Love. And every week they tell a different artist's love story. Then they break up. And he's gone and she's kind of in a tailspin and she ends up starting her own podcast to sort of investigate the the mystery of like why her parents who are in the middle of getting divorced got together in the first place because mm-hmm. they just seem like such a doomed couple. So the podcast kind of ends up being about this mystery and about trying to figure out whether love exists, like whether love is ever worth all the yeah. goddamn trouble of it. Yeah. 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 I love it. I think that's wonderful. 
I, I love the experimental structure as well. I'm playing with it too. In mine, it's a, it's a, like you're saying, it's a team. It's two girls. It's an unlikely duo that uh-huh. ends up having to do a podcast together because they don't have enough history credits to graduate because they had a, um, a guidance counselor that just like did not do his job. One of them is like the valedictorian and the other one is barely going to graduate. And so they have two very, very different voices and they end up like getting involved in like a a mystery that nobody even knew existed, a disappearance, someone that disappeared 40 years ago. Nobody even knew she was gone. Both of them with their different approaches where the valedictorian is just kind of like, oh my gosh, so horrible. And I I can't like get my mind around the darkness of the situation. And where the other girl is like, I am so not surprised. Yeah. A teenage girl disappears. Ooh, (laughs) yeah, that's never happened before, you know, and just having these really, really very divergent voices and they each host a different episode. So I haven't written one of the episodes by the rougher girl yet, but I wrote the one that's by the valedictorian. And so it was kind of fun to play with because I was writing it how would she do this? Like, what is her voice going to be like on our podcast? Cause it's going to be very serious, but I was like, we're going to like really heavy hand this. Like it's going to be a little too much and she's going to take herself very seriously. And it was a really good way to, to investigate that character. That sounds fantastic. Does that have a title yet? Right now it's uh, it's working title and I hope it does stick. Most of the time it does. What they're supposed to be doing is just uh, doing a historical podcast about their small town. There was a week in, and this is like actually true, this happened in my small town. 40 years earlier, there was a tornado that wiped out the town, a flash flood that came in right after that. And then the only murder that has ever occurred in the town happened in that same week everybody from the town calls it the long stretch of bad days so that's the name of the book oh wow i love that thanks i'm excited about it and Mm -hmm. it's not all my hometown the tornado is my hometown the flash flood is like the next town over and the murder is completely made up because nobody dies where i live (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i'm excited about it and i'm playing with that format like you said that podcast format so it's fun i mean i really enjoy it i love the question and indestructible object you know what is love i've been divorced twice i think that's a wonderful topic for a teenager to be interested in it might help them discover some things uh earlier rather than later that was something i was really trying to do in the book i feel like People get a lot of bad information about love and relationships Mm -hmm. and what constitutes a healthy or a successful relationship. Like often what constitutes successful is it lasts until you die. Nobody cheats and nobody fights. And (laughs) there's so much variation in between. And I think, you know, that a relationship can end and can still be a success. You have other options with people than... Like, we can't be together anymore, therefore you suck, and I have to just sort of burn down all the the memories. There are no villains in Indestructible Object, which is funny because my first three books all have these villains who are so bad, like their badness is visible from space. Mm -hmm. And to have in this book something that's a lot more nuanced, that you Mm -hmm. don't need to have someone who is the bad guy necessarily. Because just the way that people bounce off each other, the way that they communicate or fail to communicate, 
that can create all the conflict and tension and the things that can blow up a relationship. Although I will say this, like the main character, she's an imperfect character. You you find out as you go further in, like at the beginning, she's really idealized this relationship with her boyfriend that's just ended. Mm-hmm. But the more you learn about their relationship, the more you begin to see that it was not perfect at all. <laughs> like it never was that they sort of enjoyed telling each other sort of the story of themselves. Yeah. They looked really good on paper. I really resent the TV shows and the movies and the books that I read that cast love in a certain light where you were always happy and nothing ever went wrong. And he loved you so much. I get very frustrated with uh, YA. It is changing but, you know, I was a white librarian for 14 years and I would get so irritated when the main character love interest, the male, was so just genuinely perfect. And uh, he takes care of his little brothers and sisters and he volunteers at the Humane Society and he plays guitar and he cooks dinner <laughs> for his family and he never even looks at other girls. You are the only girl that exists. And I'm like, bullshit. Yes, he does. He looks at other girls because he's a boy. It, it would it would frustrate me because I would read when I was younger too. It's like I would read these books about like idealized love where it's like you are the only one for me and I have found you and we will be together forever. Then dating someone and be, being like, uh, so you really seem to look at Kathy a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and thinking, oh my God, this relationship is never going to work. He is attracted to someone else. And it's like, no, that's just biology. I don't know. I feel like some of those grand romantic gestures can often be, they're not always weaponized, but when they are deployed upon you, they're very difficult to resist because you're being fed. Like there's a moment where in an indestructible object where the main character and her boyfriend, they've broken up. And he shows up at her house, like in this grand, like, I want you back kind of gesture that she, she knows even then she should say no to it, but it's just too alluring. And she's getting the thing that she, that she wanted, like the, the thing that fills in that particular narrative. She should say no to it and she can't. That's something I've always felt about public proposals. When someone is proposed to in public. And people are like, oh, my God, it's so sweet. I'm like, no, because she can't say no now. Oh, uh, but when they do say no, it's so rich. I know. <laughs> there, was a, there was a Tumblr for a while. I don't know if it's still out there. And it was all like public proposals gone wrong. I loved it because I was like, this is reality. We don't always get what we want. And guys, it's girls. It's both. And it's like people really putting themselves out on the line and being told no, being rejected. And it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. to watch, but it's also real. That's reality. I would never say I grew up reading romance, but there was definitely like a summer where I think I was probably 15 or 16. And I read a lot of like Jude Devereaux and Kathleen Woodowis. So I read a lot of romance and it was all very much like that swoony we our eyes met and our fates were sealed. And that is just not how it works. And even the best possible relationship in the world, if you're not fighting, something's actually wrong because somebody isn't saying something. 
what I was reading when I was in high school. I never went through a romance reading phase, but I was reading like Pete Hamill and John Irving and John Cheever yeah. and mm-hmm. John, all the Johns, mid-century American masculinity romance novels. Oh, yeah. And that narrative is like, oh, I'm middle-aged and emotionally battered and this person is going to save me just as much a fantasy. I have a lot of thoughts about the way relationships are portrayed. And, and when you see a messy one, I really enjoy that. I, uh, I know friends is like coming back and the kids are watching friends, but you know, I watched it through high school and then in college. And then I stopped watching it after college. But I remember when Ross and Rachel broke up, like my entire dorm was watching it. It was one of the best fight scenes that I've ever seen. It was very realistic. Like they were yelling and then they were crying and then they were sorry. And then they were like, we really love each other, but this just isn't working and we don't know why. And they're both sad. It was just like a real relationship. Well, I did not expect Ross and Rachel's relationship to show up in this conversation. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I've been thinking about it because the friends, everybody's watching Friends again and people are wearing the t-shirts and everything. I was really invested in it as a teenager, as an adult. Like if it's on, I'll watch it and it just doesn't do anything for me. But I remember being like probably 18 or 19 when that episode aired and being like, oh yeah, this is, this is actually realistic. This is nice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are people who they were never quite into Ross and Rachel again. Once they broke up the first time and then got together, it was kind of like, well, psh, they're not perfect anymore. So I'm done with right. that. Yeah. Right. Which is just not real at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, happy endings are all about where you stop telling the story. The first time that I ever thought that I ever really saw that and it hit home for me was when I saw the movie The Graduate. And, you know, the movie ends with like the big romantic gesture. It He actually pulls it off. It goes well. And then the scene of them just driving away on the bus with these horrible expressions on their face of like, oh, we done fucked up. And like now we have to live with the consequences of our own actions. And yeah. I remember really resisting that at first the movie ending and I was mad like that was my initial response of like no you can't you can't do that that that's not right that's not how you tell a story and then I realized wait no that is exactly how you tell a story I read very recently I actually read The Hunchback of Notre Dame because I'd never read it before oh and I haven't read that oh god okay so I I've talked about it on the podcast before. I don't know who at Disney read that and was like, this is a children's movie. Oh my God. The the priest like flat out attempts to rape Esmeralda. Esmeralda is 14 and her knight in shining armor, whose name I forget, he literally like can't even pronounce her name. Like she decides she loves him because she likes his military like helmet, literally. Oh and- no. Oh, yes. She likes the way he looks. And then she's like, I love you. Let's get married. And then she even drops it where she's like, you don't even have to marry me. I will just be your mistress. That's fine. Let's make this happen. And he's like, you're so cute, my little pet. Patting her head. And he won't. He can't even pronounce her name. And everyone ends up dying. Literally the entire cast dies. Except for her lover, whose name I can't remember. But the very last line of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, it made me so happy Because it said, as I forget his name, we'll just say it's Greg. It says, as for Greg, he suffered the worst fate of all. He was married. 
I guess at Disney, they were like, well, if we got away with The Little Mermaid and making that <laughs> palatable to an audience of children, surely we are we are invincible now. Oh, my God. Can adapt this. It was really good. I enjoyed the book. It was fun to read. It was very well written. Everyone dies. Esmeralda is hanged. Quasimodo crawls into her grave and just chooses to lay there until he dies. As for him, he was married and it was the worst fate of all. The worst fate of all. And I'm just like, thanks for that happily ever after. But yeah, (laughs) last thing, why don't you let readers know, first of all, when the release date is for Indestructible Objects, where readers can find the book and where they can find you online. It came out June. 15th. It is available anywhere books are sold. And my website is mary-mccoy.com. I just got two pieces of good news yesterday. I found out, first of all, that Indestructible Object, there's going to be a paperback edition. And I also found out that it was nominated for Yalsa's um, Best Books for Young Adults list that they produce every year and Mm -hmm. it's funny that just felt like such an achievement unlocked like four books in and like I've never gotten that honor before it felt really special absolutely and I don't think that uh, people realize you don't automatically get a paperback you have to sell well enough in hardcover in order to get a paperback release yeah this is the first time that's happened I I did just find out also my second book Camp So-and-so which this is wild Um, that book came out in 2017 and its paperback edition is coming out next may that's nice to to know that you've written something that's kind of had that much of a long tail on it any positive things no matter when they come in this industry you embrace (laughs) writer writer pants on fire is produced by mindy mcginnis music by jack corbel Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.